You are now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. We're in this series, Be Free, and uh, in, in light of Mother's Day, uh, this chapter that we're going to be dealing with, chapter three, as Tom said, is deals with a lot of grace, a lot of grace. And so for me, there's nothing quite like a mother's grace. There's really nothing like your mom's grace. Now, my mom, she was a little different breed. She grew up in Louisiana. And so in order, she had two boys and a daughter, and she always said that the boys were mean to the daughter. I don't agree. She pestered us to the point she provoked us to wrath. And, um, but my mom would walk around the house with a belt wrapped around her neck, like just draped around it, because my mama believed in discipline, okay? But also knew this, that no matter what I ever did in life, no matter how far I strayed, no matter what sins I ever committed, I could always find grace with mom. To dad also, but, but there's just something about a mom's grace that we tend to lean into, and we tend to trust it. We just trust that no matter what, mom is still going to love us unconditionally and that she is going to forgive us and she's going to just welcome us back in. Now, some of you moms do that to a fault. You're enabling your children. But, but we also, on the other side, we also will tap into that grace way too much and sin abounds in our lives and we, because we know that where mom is, there's grace. And so Paul deals with that. He, he talks about grace and he talks about God's grace and how that Living under grace is so much better than living under the law. It's so much better. It's so much freeing. It's so much uh, much more enjoyable type of a relationship. And in this chapter that we're going to deal with today, we're already going to breeze through it. There's lots to talk about, so get your pens out. Get ready to take some notes. Uh, if, if you get bored, just take a nap. We'll be done here in about 30 minutes or so. Um, but six reasons why the law about why grace is superior to the law. And then the first thing that Paul does is he appeals to the Galatians' personal experience with grace, which is what I kind of did talking about your mom's grace and how we, we love grace. We don't like the law. We don't like it when people lay down the law on us all the time. We want grace. We want to experience grace. And Paul says, you've had some experiences with grace that lets you know in yourself that grace is better than law that it's, it's a much better place to live. And so these first five verses, he kind of taps into that personal experience and he starts out this way, a little bit kind of scolding. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The word bewitched is an, in, it's, it's an interesting word. It's the only place in the entire New Testament that this word, this Greek word is used. It's translated bewitched. And it simply means to deceive through devious and crafty means, meaning somebody intentionally deceives you through crafty methods and through crafty means. It is the only occurrence, and it's kind of giving someone, giving someone the evil eye or to cast a spell over them, to fascinate somebody with their Bible knowledge, maybe twisting the Scripture because of their Bible knowledge to intimidate you. You're like me. You've been around people that just totally intimidate you with their biblical knowledge and how they can twist things around, and they'll say something to you, and you go, I don't think that means what you think it means. I don't really think that really means, but you're afraid to say something because they have a bewitching effect on you. They have, a, they have you under this intimidation, and they have some good posts on the internet. They have a way of explaining scripture, and you're like, I don't agree with that, but I'm never going to go to them and tell them that because they will, they're intimidating. They're overpowering, and he's saying, who has overpowered you? Who is twisted the scripture to cause you to believe something 
that you didn't always believe, and you know in your heart of hearts you don't believe that. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You saw the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, let me ask you this only, or only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or did you hear? Did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question that the answer was, it was not by works of the law. You didn't get in that way. So why are you kind of going that way now? Why is somebody twisting Scripture to make you believe that the law is how, what you're under now after you've came to Jesus by faith? He says, are you so foolish? Are you, are you just that foolish that you're going to buy into that? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So your, your moment of salvation, that you knew there was no way you could earn that salvation, are you so foolish to now say that you step into a performance-based relationship with God? We talked about that a little bit last week. So they, what he's asking them is he's saying, how are you going to grow in your faith? Are you gonna grow in your faith by keeping the law now? Do you think now you can keep the law? No, you can't. You're still a Christian, a follower of Jesus who's housed in flesh, who still has the same temptations that you've always had. They didn't just go away, but now you have the Spirit living in you to help you with that, but you still can't revert back to living under the law. How are you going to now grow in your faith? And if you're thinking you're so foolish to think that you could begin your Christian journey by faith and then mature through human effort, that is not what God intended. Without what? It's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we continue in faith because we know that maturity happens as we learn to walk by faith. That's how we mature. We learn to walk by faith. That's why the people whose faith amazes you, it's not based upon necessarily their performance, it's their faith that impresses you. It's them going through a trial, knowing that in the end, all things are going to work together for good because they have faith in God. Not that they know what tomorrow holds, but what? They know who holds tomorrow, and their faith is so mature. They give out of the abundance of of their generosity, not even knowing for sure how God's going to provide, but they give anyway. And they've been doing that for years and they even do it on a fixed income because they have great faith. And some of you are making 200 or more thousand a year and won't give a dime because you don't have that kind of faith. Maturity is walking by faith. That's what Jesus is talking about. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? So. You, you started out in faith, but and you, and you knew the persecution that might come your way by starting out in faith, so now you're going to revert, revert back to the law. All of, that other, all of that potential persecution, was that all in vain? So he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's saying it's, it's, it's by faith. So you know in your personal experience, you know you started out in faith, knowing that you could not get to God by works of the law, so don't revert back to that. Let your faith in Jesus grow and let it flourish one step at a time, one act of faith at a time. So he appeals to their personal experience, and then Paul explains Abraham's justification by faith. This is the second way that he shows that faith is superior to the law, and he taps all the way back to Father 
Abraham, way back, hundreds, thousands of years prior, and starts talking about the faith of Abraham. He says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's life was marked by faith. From the very beginning, when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, in an area where there was no Yahweh God, it was only pagan worship, and called him to a land, he said, that I will show you. You just follow me, a land that I will show you, and he goes, and then he promises you that he's gonna be, a, he's gonna be the father of many, father of many, but yet he still didn't have a son and his wife was barren. But God still, and, and, and Abraham believed him for that. And then God said, take your only son Isaac, taking him up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and I want you to sacrifice him up there for me. And Abraham was obedient. And when he got up there, his son looked at him and he said, son Isaac said, dad, where's the sacrifice? And he said, God will provide for himself a lamb. And sure enough, just as Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son in obedience to God, there was a lamb hung in a thicket. And so his son was not sacrificed. He brings the lamb over, which was a foreshadowing of the sinless, spotless lamb of Jesus Christ. And it was Abraham's faith in those moments, believing when he left Ur of the Chaldees, when he believed that God would make him the father of a great nation, that all the all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And when God provided that lamb, his faith is what made him righteous or right before God. He was justified by faith that looked forward to a fulfilled covenant that God was making with him. So Abraham was justified by faith that looked forward to the fulfilled covenant that he had made with him. So if you've ever wondered, how did men and women in the Old Testament get saved? How did they do it? Did they have to keep the law? No. Their faith was a forward-looking faith. They believed in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. They believed that Jesus was going to come, that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried, and he was going to be resurrected, and that he was going to be the sinless, spotless, final sacrifice for their sins. They looked forward to that. So they had forward-facing faith, excuse me, for us, we have salvation through backward-looking faith. We look upon the sacrifice that Jesus did make for us. They looked forward to the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make for them. And Abraham had that kind of faith. Know then, Paul says, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And we all know that Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord right on. Let's go. I mean, we know the song we grew up with. If you grew up in church, you knew the song. You were singing it with me in your head, right? Uh, but, but he was the father of faith for us. Know then that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, non-Jews, if you're a non-Jew here today, you're a Gentile, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The scriptures preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And what, what Paul is doing here, he's dipping into the Old Testament, into that Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. He says, so then, because of that, 
Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So if you have faith in Jesus Christ as the sinless, spotless sacrifice for your sin, you're joined with Abraham, who was the father of faith, and your righteousness comes through faith. So we know that the gospel is the good news. It's the gospel, the Greek word is euangelion, which simply means good news of what God has done in Christ to secure our salvation. So we have the good news. The gospel is good news. We look back at the good news, what Jesus did on the cross. They were looking forward. They were looking forward to the good news. So Paul explains that Abraham was justified by faith, and that was one of the ways that grace was superior to the law. The next thing he does is Paul explains the curse of the law. What did the law do for you and me? It actually cursed us. And verses 10 through 14 really form the theological center of Galatians. This is the meat of the book. The first two chapters of this little letter are where Paul kind of laid the framework for who he was, his authority as an apostle. We looked at that over the last couple of weeks. Chapters three and four, he lays out the doctrinal foundation for what he's talking to them. So they're very doctrinally heavy. That's why he said it feels like a seminary class today because of the doctrine that we're dealing with. But chapters five and six of Galatians, it's the living it out. It's the practical side of it that we'll get into uh, the last few weeks of this series. But Paul explains the curse of the law by saying this, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So if you are relying upon your works of the law to get into heaven, you're basically under a curse is what he's saying. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you think you can get into heaven by performance, by works of the law, he's saying, get ready, because you've got to do all things. You've got to do them all. You can't just do most of them and God go up, get up there and go, well, you did pretty good. You got like a 95%, which none of you would score 95, I assure you. Neither would I. I'd probably be more than the 50% range. You know, there's a few of them I got down, but not all of them. But you've got to abide by all things. And he's tapping back into the, the, the books of the law. He's going back into Deuteronomy chapter 27 when he's pulling this out. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And he goes on. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified by for, before God by the law. And then he looks back at Habakkuk and he says, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. This is Old Testament. It's in the righteous shall live by not the works of the law. To be right with God, you live by faith. You live by faith. That same faith that got Abraham in good standing with God and he was justified, it's the same faith you and I have. It just looks at a different place. It looks from a different direction. And he goes on again. He says, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He's quoting Leviticus here. So he's saying that the law is not a faith. So the one who does them shall live by them. So if you begin living by them, thinking that's how you're justified by God, in front of God, then get ready. You are forced to live by them. You shall live by them. You have to go by and live by every letter of the law. And Jesus came along and said, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. If you've broken one, you're, you're, you're guilty of all, breaking all of this. So Christ, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So he redeemed or delivered, secured us and saved us 
from the curse of the law. How? By becoming the curse for you and for me. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, he says, so that in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what he's describing here is what theologians call, and you can even use it now and think you're a theologian or act like one, it's called the great exchange, where Jesus takes our sin and our guilt and we take on his righteousness. So what this means is that when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, he was cursed because of you and because of me. Jesus was sinless. He was spotless. He was that lamb that would satisfy the final full sacrifice that was needed to satisfy God's righteousness and God's justice for sin. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he became cursed because of you and because of me. So where we were cursed, Jesus became cursed so that we could receive his righteousness. The righteousness that he had was imputed or imparted or given to us, to you and me. So that's what he's talking about. Everyone who is hanging on a tree is cursed. He became the curse. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. That's the great exchange. The righteousness of God, or of Jesus, exchange for the sinfulness of mankind. So Paul explains the curse of the law. The next thing that he does is he gives us a human example to describe the permanence of faith. And I love this. He, he understands that it gets a little deep theologically. He says, so to give you a human example, to kind of put it in layman's terms, I want you to understand this, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified or made legally binding. Now, we don't understand that completely because you can change your will. You can go down to the courthouse or you can go down to your attorney and, and have him change your will. But back in the day, once the, a will or once a covenant was ratified, it could not be changed. It was sealed. It was signed, sealed to be delivered at a set appointed time or date or conditions, whatever the case may have been. So we understand a will in our terminology. But let's just say, for instance, that I have a gun, and I do. I have a gun that my dad gave me that his dad had given him. So at 10 years old, my dad sends me on this scavenger hunt around the house, I'll never forget it, for my 10th birthday, and I found the 22 rifle of my dad's that I loved it, and I still love it to this day. And so let's just say that I go down to an attorney and I write out a will, and I say, I want this 22 rifle to be given to my grandson's grandson. Or, and you could push it out as far as you want to. Let's just say I write out a will and I want that to be handed down from my son Luke to his son Elias and Elias' son later on and it just keeps going down to generation after generation. And let's just say 50 years from now in a 100-year will that 50 years from now, gun laws change and they implement some kind of a law. But my will, let's just say for instance, and for the sake of this illustration, it overshadows or it's more, it's more powerful and stronger than the law that changes in regards to gun laws. So that when my great, 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 great grandson is born and is old enough to receive that based upon what I have made a covenant or a will to him, regardless of what the law says, he can still receive that. 
And that is what Paul is saying here. He said, so that you'll understand this, I want you to understand now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, as he says here. It does not say unto the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to you and to your offspring who is Christ. So this promise was made to Abraham and to Jesus Christ. That was the fulfillment of the will or the covenant was in Jesus Christ. So God had promised salvation through Jesus Christ and the law did not change that. It had no effect on that whatsoever. Abraham, as we know, had many sons, but the one who would be the conveyor of the blessing was Jesus, the Messiah. So that's where the promise came to its fulfillment. That's where the will was made good because of the ratification of it 430 years after, or I'm sorry, 430 years after when the law came, it had no effect on it whatsoever. And that's what he goes on to say. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So the law had no effect on salvation by grace through faith, righteousness through a forward-facing faith. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And when God makes a promise, you know what God does? He keeps his promise. He keeps it. Once God ratifies something, he makes good on that. So in summary, kind of help you understand it. If the inheritance or salvation had been achieved by means of the law or keeping Moses' commandments, then the way of salvation would not be by the promised Christ. Are you still with me? A few of you, all right. It's heavy, just watch it like four times, all right? Because I've had to read this and study it and kind of internalize it. I've preached it in the house this morning to make sure that I could get it nailed down. So this is a summary. Here's a summary of that. So Paul has given this human example uh, to describe this permanence of faith. In number five, the purpose of the law was to show our need for grace. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is where you can kind of lean in. This is where you're gonna go, okay, I get it. It's all coming together right here. So Paul says, he asked this question, why then the law, which is why what most of us ask. If it's always been by grace through faith, even from before the law was ever written, then why did the law come into existence? Why did God ever send down the Ten Commandments, much less the 630 law that they, that's recorded in the, in the Torah. Why would we even bother with that? Good question. He says, it was added because of transgressions or sins. That's why the law came along, until the offspring should come to, to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. I'm gonna keep reading. Now, an intermediary, because that's a hard word to say, implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For a law had been given that could give life, or for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he's saying that, the law, the purpose of the law was to show you and me that we are sinners, that we couldn't measure up. We were imprisoned in this system of the law. Now, before faith came, 
we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And I love this part. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This word guardian could be translated maybe schoolmaster or maybe a teacher. There's different ways that it's translated in different translations of the Bible. They all mean basically that, that there's somebody that was overlooking mankind until Jesus Christ came. So parents in, the, in that day would often hire a guardian or a schoolmaster or a taskmaster, if you will. They would do that in order to train their children to be ready for them to inherit or to, to receive the inheritance that was coming later. So the law basically had two purposes. The law has an educational function, function and a disciplinarian function. It restrains our sinful tendencies and it points us to wisdom, life, and salvation. Let me explain this. So when we look at the law, and when the law says, commandment number six, thou shalt not kill, okay, that's educational. I need to know that there are times that people I don't like, that I shouldn't just go out and kill them. And you probably need to know that occasionally, right? But not only is it educational, it's also a disciplinarian saying that don't kill, you know, because, or let's look at this one. Um, number five, honor your father and your mother. <laughs> That's a good one for today, right? Honor your mother. It is attached to a promise that your days may be longer on the earth. And so the law, the purpose of it was twofold. It had an educational function and a disciplinary function. So it kept us, it keeps us on the right track, but it does not have a salvific function. It does not save you. It does not get you into heaven. It might keep you out of trouble, but it's not gonna get you into heaven. That's the purpose of the law. So the law restrains sin and drives people to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It shows me some boundaries for my life, but it also shows me that I can't keep those all so I need Jesus Christ for my redemption, for me to get into heaven. So number five, the purpose of the law was to really show us that we need grace because I can't keep the law and neither can you. So I need God in heaven pouring out some grace, some unmerited, unearned favor on me because I mess up all the time. I think things I shouldn't think, I do things I shouldn't do, and I say things I shouldn't say, and, and, and I need grace. And so the law, the purpose of the law was to show me that I need grace. And then finally, number six, some of you are going, great, <laughs> this is a Mother's Day message? Um, six reasons why grace is superior to the law. Grace places the believer in a better position in relation to God and to others. Grace just puts you in a better place, right? When I'm in a bad place with my wife, I need a little bit of tender grace from her. If I were to forget her birthday that's coming up on Wednesday, isn't it Wednesday? Aren't you gonna be older than me again? Yeah, it's Wednesday. <laughs> and and uh, see, I'm gonna need grace when I get home. I'm gonna need some grace. And we love that, and we love that. And so God, grace places the believer in just a better position with one another. You need grace, you need grace all the time. But man, the best part of it is it places us in a better position with God, and here's how, he, here's how he goes. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under this guardian or this taskmaster, this schoolmaster. We're not under that any longer. For in Christ Jesus, 
You are all sons of God through faith. We are the sons, we are the daughters of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ or you identified with Christ, you put on Christ, he says, because of that, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. The woke crowd loves this and they think, look, there is no male or female, we can all be just... That's not what he's saying, okay? This is not Paul going woke on us. This is Paul saying at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. When it comes to us all needing grace, I don't care if you're a Jew or a Greek. I don't care if you're a slave or a free. I don't care if you're a male or a female. You need grace. You need the grace of God. And we are equally able to benefit from the promise that God made to Abraham that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of God. And if you are Christ, he said, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're heirs according to that same promise. So with the coming of Christ, we are no longer need a guardian because we are adults now, we're led by the Spirit, and we're ready to be children of God. We're ready because we're, we're adults living by faith in Jesus Christ, not under law. Let me put it to you this way. Let's just say that when I was a teenager, the speed limit meant a lot less to me than it does now, okay? When I was a teenager, I couldn't see kids playing in the yard when I'm driving through a subdivision. I would just always want to be hammered down, hammered down as fast as I could, I didn't care. But as I've grown up and as I've matured in my driving abilities, when I go through a subdivision, I don't need a speed limit because I know there are kids present and I know there's dangers of running over a child. So I'm looking at cars backing out. I don't need a guardian when it comes to that. There are certain places I drive I need a guardian, not in a subdivision. I know to slow it down. So we're adults that are being led by the Spirit. As you mature in your faith, you shouldn't need law. You shouldn't need boundaries. They're just written in our heart because we're led by the Spirit. Obedience now becomes about trust. It becomes about security. It becomes love, not fearing or earning salvation. It's not me living under this set of law out of fear of what God's gonna punish me. No, I live in obedience because I have a love relationship with a God who loved me enough to exchange the righteousness of his son for my cursed, sinful self. When he died on the cross, he died for me, and out of the abundance of love and maturity and walking in faith, I simply live in obedience to him. And that's a mature believer. And that's what Paul is talking about. You're not under the law and you shouldn't even have to be under the law. You ought to just live your faith in a way that just shows you love God and you love the people that he sent his son to die for. And that kind of what summarizes chapter three. You're like, why didn't you say that at the beginning and get us out of here early? Because you needed to hear all the other stuff, okay? If you wanna summarize it, there it is, okay? That's it. You can take a picture of that. You can check it later. But that's the summary of, of Galatians chapter number three. But listen, don't forget the grace 
that God has poured out on you. And if you're here today and you've never received salvation that way, if your salvation was attached to works in any way, come see Tom or me. Meet us back there in the guest VIP room. Come meet us at the altar. Email us, text us. We would love to talk to you more about how you can have a growing relationship based upon grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of works. Not of works to get in and not of works to stay in. Let's stand together. God, we love you and we thank you for Paul. As smart as he was, thank you that he wrote these letters to, for us to just benefit from and to know what our faith really looks like. And so I just pray today that somebody would be free from the burden of trying to live under the law, that it brings a curse. And I pray that we can all live free to love you and to live for you as we grow in our relationship with you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.